This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 205. Hey friends, welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today I have a guest for you that I know you're going to love because when I listened to him at the Michigan Veterinary Conference in October, I loved all the things he had to say and I was so excited I ran up and introduced myself and asked him to be on the podcast. This is Dr. Aaron Massacre. He is a PhD in philosophy and he has that from the University of Guelph. He's an author. He is a wonderful speaker, and he is the executive director of the Veterinary Innovation Council. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. I am delighted to have you here. I'm really excited to be here. I know. I'm so excited. Like I do, I don't do that very often, but when I'm in a conference and I hear somebody that I really enjoy, I'm like, I have to have that person. I have to go and like assault them and, and sign <laughs> them up. <laughs> well, so I really appreciate up. you. Yeah, when you came up, I was I was really excited because I was like, this doesn't happen very often. Um, People don't ask you to be on their podcasts? No, no. Oh. So I was touched and honored and yeah, I'm just really excited to be here. Cool. Well, I'm super excited because I think, um, you know, we're going to talk about some fun stuff. So can you just start by telling me and the listeners about your journey? Like, where did it start? Sure. Um. So we can gloss over a whole bunch that is kind of- <laughs> You can of tell me up. as much or as little as you want. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, um, okay. Let's start with a really simple uh, experience that I had. So when I was growing up, um, my mother was a smoker and I never really understood why. Um, and she, and I would ask her all the time and because I was just- that kind of kid who would never let something go, I'd just be like, why are you smoking? Why are you smoking? Why are you smoking? And she's like, I just told you, but I'll tell you again. But the only thing that really stuck with me in terms of her responses was she would say, it's just a bad habit. Um, and then, and when she said that, I was like, oh, okay, it's a bad habit, right? And then I started thinking about that more and more. And I was like, how is it that something that we do is kind of inside and outside of our control? How is it that we can make these choices that we're conscious that we're making them, but we're not really in control of them? So um, I was just thinking a lot when I was younger. I was, you know, writing a lot, just kind of diaries and that kind of stuff, just trying to figure out, like, how do we live a good life? How do we think about things like habits and that sort of thing? So I went through um all of my schooling and I, I did okay in uh, high school not I actually didn't do very well at all I, I, should probably <laughs> tell the truth about that. I did okay <laughs> but not really yeah not really uh, I think my average in high school was like 73 percent or something like that like it was it was bad yes you, you got by uh, yeah I got by I got I got high enough grades to get into college um so when I got into college I immediately fell in love with philosophy um, like everything that I was thinking, we had all of these thinkers who had been working through this stuff for 2000 years. And so I just dove into it um, and everything after that point was really all philosophy. Uh, so my undergrad, my master's and my PhD were all in philosophy um, and the PhD focused on habit development. Um, how do we think about habits? How do habits control us? How do we control habits? All of that. Um, and then when I finished that up, I was teaching and, um, in Canada where I'm from, it's, uh, sessional work. So you have just like, you pick up one course for one semester and maybe you get a few courses and you try to string together a decent income, but it's not great. It's kind of like adjuncts now in the States, right? You have a lot of adjuncts and the majority of, um, higher education, I'm pretty sure the stat is now flipped. The majority of higher education, people employed in higher ed are adjuncts. They're precarious workers. So I did that for four or five years um, and it just wasn't really working out. Uh, so 
I was looking for something different and I started thinking about, um, you know, would I do consulting or would I do something else? I was applying for jobs like crazy. There were something like 300 applicants for every full-time position. Um, and so the, the likelihood that I was going to get a job was, was really minimal. Um, and I had near the beginning of the PhD, I had started dating somebody um, and then she applied to vet school and got into vet school. We got married. And so I was like, what is this like veterinary field, right? This is so <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Um, it, for people that don't like my husband's not a vet, it, it's a whole like new way of life, right? You get sucked into okay. that vortex of vet med. It's, it's a whole different thing. It's so, I just found it so amazing because these people were so intelligent in ways that I was a complete idiot. Right. And so <laughs> all the science, all the background, anatomy, physiology, all of that kind of stuff. I was like, I don't understand any of this. And I don't even know how you understand all of this because it's it's so hard. Like just being able to memorize what you need to memorize to walk around, let alone being able to apply that in complex and diverse scenarios. Like that's so incredibly challenging. Um, at the same time, I found that some of the stuff that I had been thinking about and working through complemented that really well. So I've always been really interested in how people think. And it's, sum, it's summed up by a professor of mine um, who uh, said this while I was in Belgium. He said, I'm not so much interested in what people think or what they do, but what they think they do when they do what they do. And mm. you're just like, Whoa, wait a <laughs> that sounds like philosophy to me. I've, I've read some philosophers and sometimes you read a sentence and you're like, what? I don't yeah. understand what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. So it took years to kind of unpack that. Um, yeah. So I had met her. Um, things were going really well. Um, and then I met some of her friends. So there's a, somebody who not many people know about, but when you do, you, you definitely know who this person is. Um, so Dr. Adam Little was an OVC uh, 13 grad. We started uh, talking a bunch about what was happening in veterinary medicine. He was doing some consulting work down in Texas. Um, and right at that time, my wife took a job at the Houston SBCA. So she's a shelter trained veterinarian. Um, and so uh, Dean Green at Texas wanted Adam doing some work there, but he couldn't be on the ground. But I was only an hour away from Texas A&M because I was in Houston. And so I went over and we helped to create uh, the Veterinary Innovation Summit, the Veterinary Entrepreneurship Academy, and a, a bunch of other things that were happening at Texas A&M, um, all because Dean Green took a chance when nobody else would. So she deserves um, an insane amount of credit uh, for what's been happening in the industry. Um, working with him a bit, and then I met another amazing human being. Being, um, Dr. Mia Carey, um, who, if you haven't had on the podcast, I absolutely recommend because hey, she's her, yeah. um, so she was the executive director of the Veterinary Innovation Council, and she needed a project manager, somebody to just help with telemedicine. And I'm like, well, I can take complex things and make them simple. That's what philosophy basically is. So started working on that, um, worked on telemedicine for a bit, and then really got passionate about veterinary education because I saw how people were being educated. And based on my own experience with teaching and research into how people learn, I knew that there was a mismatch between what we know about learning and uh, what veterinary medicine is doing to people through their undergraduate degree, and then how it treats them after that, once they've graduated. And I knew that there was a better way. Started working with NAVC, um, so North American Veterinary Community, and that was really good, but it was in Florida and my wife was in Tampa and I was in Orlando and that didn't really work. And then Colorado State University um, called and offered a job. Um, so we moved up to Colorado and that's where we've been since 2019. Um, in the meantime, between then and now, uh, I worked for the Veterinary Emergency Group um, for their education department, trying to lead that and trying to drive some change. And then some um, some things happened and uh, that didn't work out. And so there was a period of about six months where I was able to ride my bike and drive back to Canada and visit a bunch of people that uh, I really love and care about, see Adam's wedding, um, which was amazing. And then, um, yeah, I started with the Veterinary Innovation Council again in October. Now that I've had all this experience in between, 
Um, I just think that there's so much good that we can do. And I think that the Innovation Council is the way that that's going to happen. Um, so that's where I am. So tell me, what are your goals for this, the Veterinary Innovation Council at this point? Like, do you have a mission that you're on? Like, what are you trying to develop? Yeah. So there's what we have something like uh, that we call strategic initiatives. Um, so every year, and sometimes that's a little bit more than a year, um, we have something like telemedicine, like the veterinary nurse initiative. Um, and now we have access to care. And so what we try to do is really that that simple thing of just taking complex ideas and making them simple. So more and more people are talking about access to care, but it's not really clear what people are talking about and what they're referring to when they say access to care. Um, some people think that it's a location-based thing. Some people think that it's a financial-based thing. Some people think that it's a like has to do with the spectrum of care. And so we're trying to just kind of pull all this stuff together and try to make more sense out of it and say, where are the veterinary deserts, either for financial or geographic reasons or demographic reasons? Um, so where are the areas of greatest need? What are some financial models that might work for that? Sometimes that's a donor-driven activity. Sometimes that's just a really low-cost activity. Sometimes that's like what uh, this past week I was um, in Arizona, just outside of Page, Arizona, where there's uh, something that's run through the Serengeti Foundation. Um, it's called the Parker Project. And that partners up with Best Friends. And so they go into native reservations and provide spay and neuter and vaccines to those areas that wouldn't otherwise get them. So that's that's a way in which the access to care kind of unfolds. But most people, I think, have strong feelings about access to care without really knowing what that actually means. And so that's an initiative that we have is to try to demystify that, to try to say that if somebody comes in and offers free or low cost um, access to care in a neighborhood, that's near another veterinarian that is not actually stealing from that other veterinarian. But is that, uh, that, that, is that where the pushback is coming from? It's from like the business, small business owners in the area saying we don't want low cost services coming near us. Is that what you're finding? Small amount. Yeah. Um, so those spay and neuter clinics, um, they get pushback because uh, those uh, established clinics say that you, they're stealing their business. In fact, that's not the case. There's research out of University of Florida through Julie Levy, who shows that this is not the case. Um, but that's still one kind of myth that we need to bust um, in order to make sure that all those animals get access. Yeah. Is there some relationship between that idea of getting animals access to care in, I guess my idea is in the mental health of the veterinarians in that area, because what I experience with some of my veterinarians that are kind of either remote, like their practices don't have a lot of surrounding emergency clinics or other clinics, the large animal vets that I work with, they are struggling because there's not enough access just in their area. And so they're the ones that are taking all the burden, like they feel like they have to work all the time. Is that part of the thought process about what you're working on? Yeah, a lot of this stuff is really early. So there's not a ton of data to back up some of the things I was about to say, but there's indications of a direction that we can go in. So um, it's pretty well established that there's going to be a veterinarian and veterinary professional shortage for decades to come. Like that's not going to go away. Um, human healthcare has been dealing with that for a really long time. And so we need to think a little bit differently about how we're going to um, unburden the veterinarian to be able to do the work that he or she is more than capable of doing, making things a little bit easier for them while also not um, turning away clients. And so there's, you know, that's why you see more and more of these models popping up like emergency clinics that are kind of like urgent care clinics. Um, so access to care, if we can go in and provide basic level services to different areas and take away the burden of all of those people, you know, some people are driving two to three hours just for a basic wellness appointment or something like a lacerated paw or something like that. It doesn't 
you don't necessarily need to go to a clinic in order to do that. So is there a way of doing that um, to get access for those animals? At the same time, and this is going to be a little bit more controversial because it sounds like more work for the veterinarian, but what I've experienced is every time that I go to one of these uh, clinics, and I've been to, I think, about five or so now, every single person there leaves with a fuller heart uh, than when they arrived. And so even though they are slammed busy and the last thing on their mind is that they want to go and do more veterinary work, there's something about the group of people who's attracted to this kind of work and something about the work that they do that um, provides them with a sense of fulfillment that they they wouldn't get in their regular job and they can go back to their regular job happier. Um, I've seen this happen like again and again and again, and I've talked to people about it and they're like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, what do you yeah. mean? Of course. Like, it's their mindset, right? Like they, their mindset is they're offering a kind of like a charity. They're trying to, you know, have this altruistic, you know, motivation. And then that makes you feel better than I'm getting paid to do this slog in and out of this job every day. Like it, it's just a different way of thinking because you're in a different environment, right? Like, is that kind of what it is? Yeah, and there's, um, so the the motivation that you just mentioned, that's ex exactly what we see outside of veterinary medicine. We haven't really seen that inside of veterinary medicine in terms of like a data-driven approach, but you know, there's this great book by Dan Pink um, called uh, Drive. Uh, I think it's surprising truth of what motivates us in work and life or something like that is the subtitle, but it's Dan Pink and it's Drive. And he talks about motivation and he says, look, um, what we want are intrinsic sources of motivation and not extrinsic sources of motivation. Because if you have intrinsic sort of sources of motivation and those are autonomy, mastery, and purpose, if you have those three, you will be substantially more motivated and, and more fulfilled in the work that you do rather than extrinsic sources of motivation like money. Um, or anything unrelated to the task that you're doing. So that's really hard, right? Because then you say, oh, we just need to give people autonomy, mastery, and purpose, and we don't need to pay them. So that's not, that's not it at all. Well, because you, you, need, to... you need the money to have the outside life too. Like that's important. But I, I see what you're saying is if you're constantly only motivated because you're trying to get a paycheck, you are going to be miserable. Like that's... Yes. You know, and most vets understand that because they knew that going in to vet med that they weren't going to make as much money as, say, their human med counterparts. Mm -hmm. But when they're in it, it's harder to remember that why they got into it. What is their their motivation? What is their purpose? Yeah, and it it's so, and I think that these sort of clinics are so purpose driven that they provide that motivation for those people. It's another way of saying what you just said a few minutes ago. Um, and then, and then the autonomy and the mastery, like mastery, every veterinarian that I've ever met is driven by mastery. They want to get better at something that matters to them. It's not mastery as in like control or anything like that, but it's just getting better at something that matters to them. And so you see this desire for continuous improvement and continuous education. And that's, that's wonderful. And then autonomy uh, is the ability to do things in the way in which you see them as the right way to do them. Um, so he talks about, I think there's four T's, time, task, uh, team, and there's another one that I always forget, maybe like technique or something like that. But it just, it's allowing you to have control over the ways in which things are done. And so if you can have autonomy, mastery, and purpose, you will be more motivated but if you focus on those external motivators like money, it destroys internal motivation. It destroys that internal drive. And you just end up focusing on money. How much more money can I make? And it's really hard when you've got this debt burden that's always behind you and always weighing you down. Mm -hmm. um, but if there is a way, as you were saying before, of that mental mind shift of just shifting focus, like what is it that you're focusing on? The money is necessary, but do you focus on the money or do you focus on internal sources of motivation? 
And that I think makes people happier and more productive if they focus on that, that internal sense. Yeah. And you can, you can actually feel that like what, as you were saying, the focusing on the money versus focusing on what you're actually doing and why you got into it in the first place, you can shift that fairly easily. Cause I've done it. Like I, you, you know, a lot of veterinarians are paid on production. And mm-hmm. so, and when you're running a business, like I did, there are times when you're making a lot of money and it's going great. And then there are times when the economy is terrible and you're not making any money. And so I would start focusing on the money. Well, I got to make sure I do every test and charge for every test. And, you know, and I, I would start to do that and I, you would just naturally become less happy because that's not what you're there for. You're there to make the client happy, to make the pet better, to do a good job for the pet, to, you know, do a thorough job, which the money usually follows that. But also if you're not communicating well to the client, especially if it is a money issue, then nobody's going to be happy, including you. So I think just that, you know, experiment that I did on my own, you know, by when you're the owner, you're like, sometimes you're really focused on money. And then other times when the money's like not a big worry, you're more focused on how's your practice running? Is your team happy? Mm-hmm. Is everybody getting what they need? Like you can focus on that. And that's much more fun than just trying to cr- crank out the cash. You know, that isn't as fun. <laughs> yeah. That's not why it's, we got into it, right? It's fascinating that, you know, it's just taking a moment and making that mental shift. And it's amazing the number of things that you can do when you have that moment of just pause and reflection and saying, am I focusing on the things that matter? Right. And just asking that question. And, you know, your answer obviously was no, if I'm focusing on the money, I'm not focusing on what matters to me, to the team. And it's, uh, yeah. So those people who think that they can, um, cut their way to profitability, you know, by like reducing costs, reducing costs. And it's no, you, it's a relationship business. If you focus on the relationships, both with you and your staff, your staff with the clients, you with the clients and everyone around the animal, and you build on that, the money will come. That's something that, so I've done a lot of stuff in sort of entrepreneurial area, just reading books. I'm not an entrepreneur. I wouldn't take that title, but just reading a lot. It's amazing how much the money follows the problem solution, right? So if you create solutions for people in a relationship-based way, the money follows. But if you focus on the money, it's not the inverse. It's not like you can focus on the money and the relationships are going to follow, but you focus on the relationships, the money follows. Enough money, right? Um, Yeah, it's just fascinating, just taking that moment and saying, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing what matters? Am I doing what's going to actually make me fulfilled and going to provide the best care possible to people? It's so rare that we take the time to do that. But if you can, it's amazing the mind shift that can result from that. Yeah. So if you were talking to, I mean, I I often say younger veterinarians because I'm older <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I just... I see that there, that veterinary medicine has gotten so much harder, you know, from a standpoint of there's more to learn, there's more to know there, you know, there's more demand from the clients, like things have gotten harder since I started in a different way. Like we used to have to go in for emergencies at midnight, like that has changed for the better, but in a lot of ways it's gotten harder. What advice would you give that veterinarian that's struggling with not only their motivation, but their purpose and, you know, the autonomy, the whole thing, what advice would you give them to start moving in that direction? Cause it's very overwhelming. Like the people that I coach are so buried in all of their stress and thoughts that it's really hard to climb out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, it's challenging. And yeah, it is, right? I think a big part of it is because of the way in which um, veterinary medicine selects for a particular type of person and the way in which they train them through uh, vet school. And the fact that we don't focus on the whole person, um, but we just focus on 
you know, what, what are their grades? And there's some schools who are moving more towards um, a more holistic assessment of the person and, and trying to get a, a, a wider variety of experiences. But it's it, you are selecting for a very particular type of people who are um, overachievers, who are incredibly intelligent, but who maybe haven't spent the requisite amount of time to develop their personal relationships. Mm. Um, and so being able to figure out how to do that effectively is, is really challenging. Um, yeah, there's a, I think there's a few things that I would say to those people. Um, so one, we exist in an environment right now where, um, there are way more jobs than veterinarians. And so if a veterinarian doesn't like the environment that they're working in, then leave it. Like there's, nobody should be tolerating a bad culture. Nobody should be tolerating um, a, a lack of a supportive environment. Nobody should be tolerating um, being undermined by, you know, the practice owner or clients or whatever. People shouldn't tolerate that. There are far too many jobs out there. Um, sometimes that requires moving, um, moving across the state. I'm, you know, from Canada, I've lived in one, two, three, four, four states now since 2016. Well, it's possible to do, right? <laughs> totally possible to do. Uh, and right now we we are so lucky because we have an amazing community of people around us in Fort Collins, so in Fort Collins, Colorado. There's just amazing people. We get together every Thursday night um, and it's a bunch of veterinarians, like pretty much all my friends now are veterinarians, except for like one or two stragglers from like uh, early college years. But yeah, just um, do not tolerate that kind of environment where you are not supported. That doesn't mean that everyone should be lavishing praise on you for simply walking in the door. But it does mean that if you're trying um, and you are not well supported in that environment, like that's not a great place to be. So environment, think about that. Think about whether or not you're getting what you need out of that environment. Um, second thing, I would, I would try to get them to focus on where they wanna be five to 10 years from now. Because one of the biggest challenges that they have, and this is not just like, you know, lofty goal setting, that sort of thing, but there's something very particular about thinking about the future that gets us out of the stressors of the present. And so the more that you can think about the future and the steps that you want to take in order to get there, the less of an impact that those uh, present stressors are going to have on you, because it's not your reality. Your reality is a mixture between where you are right now and where you're going. And the more that you can prepare your own pathway for where you're going to go in the future, the less of an impact that present will have on you. And so that might be something like, um, you know, family. Um, and then thinking about what are the specific steps that you're going to take in order to get there. It might be something like, um, you know, you want to go through uh, ABVP and get um, uh, become a diplomat in either feline or canine or exotics or something like that. But being able to take the, the individual steps that are required in order to realize that helps to pull you out of the present and all of the stress that exists in the present. And um, I, would, I would add to that, that we as veterinarians all know how to do that because that's how we got to be veterinarians. Right. We, we focused on getting into college. Then we focused on getting into vet school. Then we focused on getting through vet school and it was all painful. Like there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of fun. I had a great time in vet school, met a lot of great people that are still friends to this day, but also there was a lot of pain, but because we had that focus that we needed to be a vet and we wanted to be a vet and we were so driven to that, we were able to deal with that stress. And so, like you said, if you can have that vision of what's your next goal, then that's going to help pull you through. Yeah. Yeah. Having the vision and taking those steps, right? Like not just saying this is where I want to be in, you know, um, some imaginary sense, but what are those particular things that you can start doing today? Um, yeah. It's, it's so interesting what happens after vet school, right? Like so much pressure. I think because you, a lot of times it's like, that was your only goal. 
Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how you felt about your PhD, but when you were getting your PhD, that's all you thought about. Like that was it. And then once you get it, you're like, oh, well, that was my whole life goal. And mm-hmm. I'm only 20, like five or whatever you were when you graduated. And then it's like, oh, now what do I, you know, like, now what am I going to be? Like that, that is a, a mind shift. It's, it's really hard and there's not a lot of support out there. You know, I, um, I have a, a lot of things to say about the, the CE market, um, and a lot of it isn't good, but there, there are definitely organizations who are trying to take a positive step, like thinking about a growth pathway, right? Um, it's, it's something that when you, you're reading, um, instructional design and everything about how we learn, it's a necessary part of our development is a growth pathway. Um, but so many CE providers, they often just, you know, give you little bits and pieces of things rather than a comprehensive picture of how to grow and develop. Um, I know, like, this is a bit of a shout out to my parent organization, NAVC. So I'm an employee of NAVC, and so I'm definitely biased, but I can see it inside. What they're trying to do is trying to say, where are you in your career and how can we help you take the next step? Do you know what the next step is? If you don't know, that's okay too. Here are some options, right? So it's just taking all the information that we have about people and then offering a next step for them because sometimes it just it feels like you're stuck, you know? Mm. And if somebody is just helping you say, here's a way out that continues being a veterinarian, but it's a way forward. That's sometimes yeah. enough to take away some of those, those pain points of the daily grind. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I will shout out to NAVC too, cause I'm applying to be on the board. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going through that process right now. So if you're out there, pick me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that organization. And that's why I thought, well, if I want to get on another board, I'm going to try that one. So that's yeah. good. That's cool that you were on that. So I, now I'm going to lose my train of thought because we went down that road. Um, when you're talking about growing and learning, like I, when you say people get stuck, that's kind of why I was so interested in life coaching, because that's what life coaches kind of help people do is mm-hmm. to go from where they are feeling stuck and kind of get them over whatever it is that's stuck, sticking them. Mm-hmm. So in your training, what would you, what would you tell people to do to kind of start to get unstuck or go into that kind of growth mentality? Is, is that a question? Am I yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really <laughs> Sometimes interesting I'm question. forming questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really like that. That's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting for a, a lot of different reasons, but um it's amazing how much of the time these cliches that we have are true in a way that the cliche, it kind of, it doesn't help, right? Like we say stuff like you are your own worst enemy and, and that sort of thing, right? And somebody can say that and just kind of like pass it off. But when you start really thinking about what these cliches are and how they fit into our lives, you're like, wow, there's something way more profound that's going on here. So for example, that one that I just said, you are your own worst enemy. Um, It's amazing how much of the time people uh, stop themselves from doing the thing that they know that's right because of some like mental friction that exists for them that they can't really get past. So I'm, I'm really lucky that well, lucky and, and it's quite painful sometimes um, that I have such an amazing wife because she will often say, but yeah, but you know, you don't need to do that. Right. <laughs> or you don't need to, um, you don't need to think about it that way. Here's another way of thinking about it. And you're just like, no, but I, but I want to think about it this way. Like I want to think about the limitations that I have. So for me, I, I love cycling. Um, and I was like, well, I, I want to do this particular kind of cycling. And she's, and I'm like, I need another bike in order to do that. And she's like, why do you need another bike? And I'm like, because I, I need another bike. Like, that's just clearly the, the answer. And I can't get another bike because you won't let me get another bike. She's like, if you want to get another bike, you can, but is there another way to 
do that kind of cycling without buying another bike and i'm like yeah you know <laughs> so it's like at that yeah, moment but i don't like, want to <laughs> but i don't want to right i want and, a new bike and how much of the time is that the case right and i i think about how lucky i am because i can i can set my own schedule every day um yeah i have meetings and that sort of thing but for the most part i can set my own schedule there's things that i'm responsible for but I wake up in the morning, I stretch, I meditate for 15 minutes. I write for about half an hour, 45 minutes, um, walk the dogs, eat breakfast, read some hard material for even just half an hour. And then I start my day. Um, and it, it creates the framework that I need in order to have a productive day. Um, you know, and so I'll talk to people about something like uh, meditating, and it's a very particular kind of meditating. Um, it's called Vipassana, but it's just basically breathing meditation. And I was listening to a, a podcast not too long ago by Andrew Huberman, which if you're interested in like neuroscience and that kind of stuff, fascinating guy. That guy's awesome. So good. Listen right? to him. Yeah, he's he's crazy good. Yeah. Um, so uh where was I? So sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um just trying to think through. Okay, so thinking about uh, meditation. And he said, look, the purpose of this meditation is to train your brain to refocus. It's not to do anything else. It's just training your brain to refocus. And so if you if your mind starts to wander, refocus it. Because if you can train your brain to refocus every day you'll have less multitasking, which we now know multitasking is a myth. People can't do it. They think they can, but they can't. I know. I used to love multitasking until I learned that. And I was like, oh, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> can't do it anymore. It's something like um, 1% of the population thinks that, or 1% of the population can actually multitask, but not in an attention splitting way. There's, there's very specific ways. And so then I, I'll typically say to people, if you think you're that 1%, then you don't understand statistics. Um, and, they're like, what? and I'm like, let's just leave it aside. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Um, so that, you know, that activity of meditating every day, um, people are like, well, I don't have 15 minutes. I'm like, but, but you have two. You have two minutes, at least once a day, likely more than that, where you can just sit there and go through a refocusing exercise by focusing on the breath as it comes in your nose and out your mouth. And just doing that, just focusing on that, let your mind wander, bring it back to the breath. That's all it is. And so that's something that I would, I would totally say to people is, you know, if you're trying to um, get over some of those mental hurdles and get unstuck, a lot of it is creating space for thinking differently about what's going on in your life. And you, in order to do that, you need to train yourself to do that. And training yourself to do that can be something as simple as a two-minute exercise once or twice a day. And some people I've seen do this, you know, they pull into the parking lot at work and they just sit there for two minutes because unless you're already late for a meeting, the two minutes isn't really going to um, mean anything to anyone else except for you. Um, so just that creates the space for better decision-making. It just calms you down a little bit, refocuses your energy and puts it where you want it to go rather than being overwhelmed by everything that's happening around you. Well, and I would like to add to that, that just the knowledge that you can control all of it is like a light bulb. You know, mm -hmm. it's like when someone says, hey, this is all in your control, all mm -hmm. of the overwhelm, all of the stress, all of the all of the things you're feeling are all under your own brain and you have the control of it. And it's, it's almost like an accusation, like you're not doing it right because you're so stressed out. But if I get to a point where I'm really overwhelmed and I can feel it, I'm like, okay, I know that I can fix this. I just have to stop and unpack it. So I know what's causing it. And then be like, oh, okay, now, now it makes sense. Now I get to go back and work on it. So I think just knowing that there's work to be done and that if you're willing to work and, he, and that may just be your meditation, you know, five or 10 or 15 minutes a morning, 
or your list making or your writing or whatever you need to refocus that it it's it's genius like it changes your life i've um this is one of those situations where i'm like yeah and we were talking about it 2500 years ago right like there's this yeah uh, of the philosophers like you start reading those books my it's it's fascinating that you're a philosopher because i raised one my son <laughs> and my sister too when i was growing up was very into philosophy and like she was into some really crazy way out there things because if you're not into philosophy and you start reading it you'll be like whoa this is weird yeah but my sister was into it so i had some exposure well then my son was very much and still is very much into philosophy and so i kind of had to get on board in order to understand what he was talking about and what he was reading and you know here read this book mom and i'd be like eh, this is scary <laughs> i can't read this but anyway just just having that just that knowledge that it's all, you know, it's all people that some people, things that people have been working on forever. Yeah. Cause it, like everything that you were just describing, um, is, uh, and everything that we've been talking about so far is, is a lot of stoicism, you know, and there's like a kind of a contemporary resurgence in this idea of stoicism and the relationship between stoicism and cognitive behavioral therapy and, uh, talk therapy and all of these different things. It's so fascinating. And it all comes down to this really simple thing is that there's a world out there. It impacts you, but you have a choice as to how you want to respond to that world. At every single moment, you have a choice of how you want to respond. And sometimes we're agitated and we can't respond well. And sometimes we're calm and relaxed and we respond in the exact way that we want to respond. And so then how do we think about cultivating that calm and stable state of mind to allow us to respond in the way that we want? And I think sometimes it really just comes back to that, just being aware of the fact that there's a world out there that impacts you and you can choose how you want to respond, creates that space that allows you to say, okay, I don't need to respond right away. I don't need to send that email right away, even though it feels really good to like, <laughs> you know, fire that email off and like yeah, oh, I got him it just was mean to you yeah my yeah, husband and like, I call it the 24-hour rule when we're really worked yeah. up and we want to respond he'll be like all right write the email but then take 24 hours before you send it and reread it because sometimes you write things in the moment that you don't really want to write and I, I see this stuff happening in clinics all the time where you know, so there's a, a negative client interaction and the client is probably upset. And, um, you know, I've seen people yell that. I've seen people um, said that they're, you know, a bad person, that all they care about is money and all of these other things. And I just, I think about it and I put it in the context. I'm like, what just happened? You know, this person just found out that there's a terminal illness for their animal. And you, as the person who conveyed that information, think that you're providing like, a reasonable um, assessment of what's going on and you expect a reasonable response, but that's not what's coming out of that person's mouth. And so if you try to say that there's some sort of truth to what they're saying, aside from the truth of their negative experience, if you think that they're saying something that they genuinely believe is true, that you're just in it for the money, that you don't care about them, you don't care about the animal, all of these negative things, if you accept those as true, then of course you're going to feel terrible about that and you're going to need to do something about that. But if you just put it in context and say, this person is going through trauma right now and what I need to do is give them the space that they need in order to process that. And what they say may or may not be true, but I can't just take it at face value. Because what I, I saw so many times and I still see is that veterinarian or technician or whomever will go and then tell other people as in like, can you believe what just happened, right? And they're looking for some sort of connection with someone else to validate their experience, to say that the client is wrong. But right. the client was wrong from the beginning and they know that. Right. And so if they can just say, no, I'm, I'm just not gonna respond to that. Like, I'm just not gonna let it in. I'm not gonna respond to it. I'll just give it time. Maybe I'll follow up with them 24 hours later or something like that. But rather than immediately turning and burdening the other people that you work with, with that, 
because it feels good for you to disburden that stuff. And people are like, well, they, they have to like let it out. And I'm like, no, they don't. Like there's no necessary connection between those two things, but they can take that energy and put it into something more productive, you know, but I, I don't know. I just see it all the time. And I'm like, if, if you just said that that person's going through trauma and so I can't take what they're saying at face value and just not respond, then it creates that space that produces the result that you want. But most people, for some reason, don't do that. And I, I, I don't know. Well, in I, so I'm many instances that. like that, if you push back with the negative, you're going to create more negative rather than being like, you know what? I just told you that your dog has a really bad disease and it's going to cost you $10,000 to treat it. And you're feeling all kinds of, you know, shock and grief and, you know, all that emotion. And that's what's coming back at me. That anger is just them, like not knowing how to handle their emotions. If I can be the bigger person and be like, I get this is hard. I get that this is expensive. I get that you don't have the money. I get that this is a hard decision. Let's, let's work on it together and see what we can do. And Mm -hmm. if you can stay that way and stay calm and just be like, not take it personally and just be like, I get why these people are so upset. It will, it, it, it not only will help them respond better, even if it takes them 24 hours before they kind of get over it, but it, it helps you so much to just be like, wow, that was hard, but I handled it. And, and I'm proud of myself for, you know, letting that negativity just flow through me and, and helping these people. Cause that's what you're really there for, right? You're there Mm -hmm. to help the client and it, you know, whatever happens with them, whatever they say. And, and sometimes it's very hurtful, but it's only hurtful because you're thinking that it's hurtful. Like they really can't hurt you unless they physically come at you, which I guess sometimes happens. <laughs> yeah, that does happen. It's not. Yeah, it's not un- unheard of. But but I had a lot of clients yell at me, and when I first started doing it, because I was a hospital owner, so I always got the the highest level. You know, like the low level yellers wouldn't end up with me, but the high level yellers would. And I just had to learn to be like, okay, when you start to feel defensive that's you wanting to fight back, but fighting back isn't going to help them. You've got to let it just come and stay calm and let them like get it all out. And if I, if you don't say anything other than nod your head and like, I understand, then they start to come down and then you're like, okay, now what can we do to help? Like, what can I, what can we actually do? Can I call a specialist? Can I, you know, I only have $200 doc. Okay. Well, what can we do for $200? Let's, let's make a plan. And so I think that it takes training. It takes brain training, right? And maybe you're you're meditating in the morning. Like if you can go back to that, like I'm just gonna breathe while this client's yelling at me. So I can so I don't feel that defensive. I don't say anything defensive. And there's something um I don't know. There's something that I do that I I don't know like where it came from, but um, it goes back to what you were talking about um, with being proud of how you responded. Um, there's something really important about that sense of pride in how you respond to other people and cultivating that appropriately. Um, so whenever I'm going through a really difficult or traumatic situation, whether that's like the loss of a family member or something, I always try to think about it as here's an opportunity for me to become the kind of person that I want to become. Mm. We don't get those opportunities every day. It's a great thought. When that opportunity does present itself, then can you see this as an opportunity rather than being this like animalistic, you know, um, stimulus response? Can you kind of overcome that and say, no, here's an opportunity for me to become a better person, to be proud of the person I am and how I responded to the situation. And it it's so hard to do that, but I, I really think a lot of that comes down to creating that space between action and reaction. Mm-hmm. And just saying, what is that space? Am I in that space right now? Can I overcome that? Even though the reaction is going to feel really, really good in that moment, <laughs> just 
Yeah, because I love a good fight. I'd love to fight back. Oh. That's like my first thing. I'm like, oh, I'd love to say something to this person. But overcoming that is so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Like being like, oh, I, I could have said this, but I didn't. So now I'm proud of myself that I didn't lower myself to that level. Exactly. Because in that moment, it, it feels awesome. And then, you know, five minutes later, you're like, well, that was dumb. You're embarrassed. Yeah. You're like, well, yeah. I shouldn't have done that. That was a dumb thing to say, or that was hurtful, or, you know, that's that chihuahua. I call it the chihuahua brain, that primitive brain reaction. I call yeah. it chihuahua because they kind of like, sometimes when they're really scared, they lash out. And um, like, if I can catch that before I lash out, then that's, that's a cool day. Um, that dog um, coughing that we had talked about before is crazy. Your dog coughing. All right. This is the veterinary life coach podcast. So dogs are always <laughs> welcome. Even if they're gacking, even if they're vomiting, mine sometimes bark right now. They're both knocked out here but yeah that's fine yeah. if dog yeah. cough, coughs in the background that's okay as long as they're yeah. not choking to death then you need to go rescue them <laughs> oh, he's, he's good he's, he's okay sometimes yeah <laughs> um there's there's one other part of it that i i wanted to talk about a little bit um and it's it's what happens when those negative experiences are the only things that you focus on um, well we remember those right because they're emotional we remember those more. Like I remember every bad client encounter. I don't remember all the good ones. And I, I think that that's really, I think that's that's normal as a veterinarian, right? I think most veterinarians feel that same way. And I don't understand why there's not more proactive measures taken to think about the positive ones. So there's one clinic that I was in um, and they had this, uh, it was like a tree and they, on the tree at the end of every day, they would take uh, a negative experience and a positive experience and put it on that tree. And it would force them to remember the positive experience and the negative experience, it would force them to leave it at work. Let it go. Yeah. And it, this is something that I experienced and um, it's a little bit personal. So I hope my wife doesn't uh, get upset with me for sharing this, but. (laughs) Well, if she does um, text me or email me later and I'll cut it out. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I think she's okay with it though. But um, when she was working at one of her jobs, uh, she would come home at the end of the day and uh, it was just a lot of negative experiences. These are the negative things that happened to me during the day. Um, and uh, we got to a point where I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Right. And she she saw how I responded to the dog. Every time the dog walked in the door, I was like super excited to see the dog. And every time she walked in the door, I was kind of like, great, you're home. Oh no, here she comes with all the negative stuff. (laughs) Right. And so she's like, what's, you know, what's up with this? Why are you excited to see the dog, but you're not as excited to see me. And I'm like, cause the dog is excited to see me every time I see it. But every time you come home, you've got this burden of all these things that happened at work. And um, so then I just said, like, is there anything good that happened today? And she's like, oh, of course there is. Lots and she was like, missed right? off all of these things. And I'm like, then why are we just talking about the negative stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I asked her, um, can you just tell me three positive things that happened with you at work before we go into the negative stuff? And uh, she's like, well, yeah, of course, right? So every day when she would come home, she would tell me the three positive things. And often she would forget the negative things because she was so focused on the positive things. Yeah. And the negative things, like they still happen, but they just weren't something that she needed that to. Important. Right. Yeah. Well, because then you're not, she wasn't focused on them. She was trying to focus on the positive. And I, I think that's training your brain to look for the positive because she knew when she came home, she was going to have to give you three, right? So she right. had to train her brain. I've had that experience with with my coaching clients, the veterinarians will come to me and they'll say, well, this client was mean to me and blah, blah, blah. They'll go through the whole story, like how upset they are about this mean client. And I'll say, well, what percentage, how many clients did you see today? And they'll say, oh, 30, you know, well, what percentage of the clients were mean? Well, just that one. I'm like, well, what's the percentage? And they'll be like, 2%, 5%. (laughs) <laughs> like, so why are we worrying about that? 
Like, so you had this amazing day because 95% of your clients were amazing and awesome. So it's just like taking that focus and flipping it, which is what you did with your wife, right? Yeah. And it things just got better. And there were times when she would come home and there was no room for positivity. There was some really negative experience. Really bad. Like if someone dies on you, you've got to, you've got to like process that, right? Totally. So we would do that. Um, You know, and it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of it goes back to um, some of that insecurity that we had talked about a little bit before Yeah, is that we focus on those negative experiences because we don't have anything we don't have a, a readily available positive set of experiences that we can immediately refer to, but it's amazing what happens when you, when you start focusing on them, like the, you know, it's confirmation bias in psychology, but you just like, you start finding the things that you're looking for. And so if you look for the negative things, you're going to find the negative things. If you look for the positive things, you're going to find the positive things. And that then, um, when you find those positive things, builds up a, an appropriate sense of security, not an ego-driven, I am a master surgeon, so therefore I couldn't possibly do something wrong. No, I have all of these examples of really great things that I've done. And so it builds that appropriate level of um, sense of self-worth and security that makes amazing veterinarians even better rather than focusing on the negative, which is just that downward spiral that leads to people leaving the profession. You know, so I, I find it so fascinating that it's just like, just what are you focusing on? Because you, you see with your brain, you don't see with your eyes. Right. And so what is it that your brain is looking for? Are you looking for the positive or are you looking for the negative? It's not to say this is not a toxic positivity thing where there is no negativity, but it's, what are you trying to focus on and what do you want to focus on? And are you getting the results that you want? That's what, I don't know, that always fascinates me. Yeah. Well, and just the knowledge that you're going to fail at that, even like if you want to be more positive and you're working on that, you're going to, you're going to fail because yeah. you're going to have days when you go to work and you're like, oh, this job sucks that your brain's going to say that. And you're going to be like, oh, I was trying to be more positive. I guess I'm not. But just being like, oh, okay, well, I had a slight failure. I'm going to refocus and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. And the more you refocus, the easier it gets when you do fail, when you do start thinking negatively, when bad things happen, when you're afraid, when you're going into a surgery, you get like anxious, like, okay, my brain's failing. It's telling me all the negative things. Now I got to refocus. It is that training, you know, like we, we think about training in terms of surgery or communication or, you know, being able to track a disease development or something like that. But we don't think about brain training and it's one of the easiest things to do. Like you think about all of the things that veterinarians have done in their lives to become a veterinarian and brain training is like one of the easiest things. Like all of you are so smart. You're so incredibly intelligent. Um, and if we could just add this little bit to it, it would just make things that much better. Yeah. Well, just by doing this podcast, we are helping them figure this That's, out, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're giving them lots of tips on how to start training their brain better. And you have such a calming voice. You're just like very calm. So I could see why <laughs> you would be easy to come home to, to like dump all their, all your problems on. Right. Cause you probably don't react. Yeah, I I try not to, you know, I I definitely do. There's definitely times where, you know, I get upset or frustrated or whatever. Um, But I just try really, really hard to be calm and stable because I know that I make better choices when I do. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I do. Like I try to ride my bike, you know, every day or every other day. The meditating works um, well. I notice like, don't schedule meetings for 3 p.m. because I'm going to be super cranky at that time. Like, it's just kind of where I did. That's your right? habit. Yeah. Yeah. And and so then how do I, how do I structure my day to get the most out of my brain and my abilities? Sugar is, is bad. Like maybe it's great for other people. It's terrible for me. Um, it feels awesome for about 20 minutes and then the crash is terrible. So all these little things that I've tried to learn about myself and how my brain works um, and then set up my environment so I don't have to deal with it anymore. Like 
I, I don't want to focus on willpower. I don't want to use willpower in order to overcome my desire for eating another like chocolate bar, right? So we have them. They're just in the basement. Um, so they're just a little bit Out further away. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's it, yeah. right? So just change the environment a little bit. Like there's all these little things that we can do to make our lives better, but it does take effort. Um, at least at the beginning, it takes effort. Yeah. So I know, I know we're kind of getting long here. I, I would love at some point to go through your whole habit talk that you did at the conference. So maybe we can do it on another podcast because that's really sure. good stuff. And I think it kind of piggybacks on all this that we're talking about, right? Because habit training is kind of like your brain training just on a, on a different level, or at least the way we're thinking about it when you're trying to break a bad habit. So if you'd be willing to do another podcast with me, I'd like to do that somewhere along the line, maybe early in the year, because that's when everybody's trying to do their um, resolutions and change their bad habits. <laughs> yeah. So maybe towards the end of this year or the beginning of next year. I'd so love to do that. What yeah. didn't I ask you about this topic or anything else that you really wanted to, or what should have I asked you that I didn't about this topic? Um, you want to say to the vets? I think it, it goes, it's kind of a theme that we've been talking about. Um, you know, veterinarians are so capable in so many ways. They're, some of the most educated people in the world, especially when it comes to people who are educated in North America, the level of medicine that you're taught here is unbelievable. Um, and, you know, you're taught a very particular approach. Um, you're taught to, to look at the symptoms, you're taught to then analyze them, run further diagnostics, develop a hypothesis for treatment, and then follow through with a treatment plan. Like this is what you do every single day, sometimes 30, 40 times a day, you know? And it's um, it always blows my mind that veterinarians don't see that as a transferable skill that they can apply to themselves. So to be able to just take a moment and say, what are the symptoms that I'm experiencing? You know, what are the things that I think are right or wrong? What are the things that are inside of my control? What are the things that are outside of my control? What further diagnostics or further tests do I want to run on myself? And then what kind of treatment plan can I come up with myself for myself and then be able to reflect on that afterwards? Did that work or did that not work? Like that simple structure, if, if more veterinarians who are so incredibly well-trained in that applied that to themselves, I think that they would be able to work through a lot of the issues that they're experiencing um, in a way that, uh, and find solutions that they don't necessarily see right now. And it's, um, I would just love to see more of that, uh, more people doing that, because I think that they're more than capable of doing it. But for some reason, it just doesn't happen. It's only for animals, even though humans are animals, you know. I know. I've always said that people are animals. It's yeah. really, it's the same, the same set of skills, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would encourage people to really listen to that because that is important. That that will solve a lot of life issues, not just veterinary medicine, not just your job, but life in general issues that you're having. It's yeah. just, just thinking about, I know how to solve a problem. Right. Yeah. The answers are there. Yeah. I love it. Well, tell people if they want to learn more about you, where they can look you up and find you. And then I'm going to have you come back if you're willing, if you, Perfect. if you liked doing this, but, um, cause I definitely think that we can offer more. You've yeah. got amazing ideas and I love the, I love that bent on the, the learning and the, and the philosophy part of it. Well, um, if you, Google my name. It's so far, I'm the only Aaron Massacre that exists on Google. So everything oh, we on there wow. is probably That's about pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, comes with having a really uh, strange last name. Um, <laughs> LinkedIn is probably one of the best ways of getting in touch with me. Um, I'm developing a website, but it's pretty slow and there's just some like random things on there right now. Um, so LinkedIn is probably the best way uh, to get in touch. And if there's anyone who has any questions, like please reach out. Like I love talking about this stuff. I love you know having these kinds of conversations. So I'd be more than happy to come back and 
and have another conversation with oh, you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll have you as a regular. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Just once a month, because I, I love listening to you, and I got so much out of it. I really did. So if anybody is at a conference that you're at, I'm assuming you're going to be doing more speaking at conferences coming up. If they run across you, make sure that they attend because mm-hmm. you'll get a ton out of it. I have on my iPad, I have like five pages of notes. Like I was writing furiously as you were talking. So I, uh, it was, it was all really good stuff. And if anybody has any questions or, um, you know, if they want me to ask more questions on our next podcast or talk about a certain subject, um, send me an email at jacapeldvm at gmail.com. I really, really appreciate you agreeing to do this. It's been so much fun. Likewise. I've been smiling the whole time. Yeah, Except when I'm like really thinking about something that you asked me. But, uh, <laughs> Except when we're good. talking about all these tragic things that, we're, that yeah. we have to deal with in Batman, right? right? All right. I really enjoyed this. We're going to do it again. I absolutely promise. And uh, it was so nice meeting you and talking to you. And we'll do it again. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Aaron. No problem. Thanks, everyone. Have a beautiful week. Bye.